a mourner visits their relative in the family's ornate and secluded mausoleum when a killer reveals themselves from the shadows and wields a gravedigger's shovel in a fit of rage. As they realize this tomb has become their tomb, the victim wraps their bloody knuckle on the grave of a distant cousin. Is it a clue to the murder? Is it a hint at the motive? No, it's Dying Message, the detective anime mystery podcast. Welcome to Dying Message, where each week we watch detective anime along with a mystery guest. Today's case, Case Files number 221, Kabukicho, aka Kabukicho Sherlock. Episode 1, Hello Detectives. I'm your lead investigator, Noah Max Levine, back in the recording studio after a long night of detective work deep under cover of bed. Oh, I don't know that that worked. Nope. I also think we need to, we can't do any more anime that start with the word case. Well, because then I say case twice in a row. I don't know that this anime actually starts with case. That's a decision <laughs> well, someone in America made. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about that soon. Um, I have to introduce you, Michael. I have to introduce our guest. But first, what are what are we even doing today? Uh, we always watch detective anime. Recently, we've been watching some new-ish series from the past few years. Um, so today we're watching this series, Case Files number 221, Kabukicho, Kabukicho Sherlock. We watched the pilot episode. You can find it on Hulu if you want to watch before you listen. We're going to spoil everything about the episode. There is a little mystery in this one and some secrets about who the characters are. So you're welcome to watch in advance or to not even watch at all and just enjoy our conversation today. They have a subtitled version and a dubbed version all on Hulu and if you have access to that. So our anime expert is joining me, our resident anime expert, Michael Savitsky. You live with me. You watch a lot of anime. Um, I wanted to know, you showed me some of what you got yesterday, but you, you got some booster packs for the Digimon trading card game. Okay, you're going to drag me uh, in, the, in the middle of the recording? <laughs> I just try to think of all your anime-related hobbies. Mm-hmm. Anything interesting in that booster pack? Uh, well, I showed you my two rarest cards were two booby ladies. Uh, that, uh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sexy lady Digimon, and it's a little confusing to me. That's not something that happens in Pokemon. Because they're not supposed to be people? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Mike, what have you got for us today? Uh, well, uh, since this is Kabukicho Sherlock, I thought we'd talk about Kabukicho, uh, which is a entertainment slash red light district in the east side of Shinjuku. Uh I don't know how much of a red light district it really is. It's certainly played up enough in anime and games. Uh, I've never been there, so I can't say there really is a lot of prostitution going on in this place. But that's what fiction would at least lead us to believe. Well, we're talking about an area of uh, Tokyo. Yes. So it's kind of it's kind of similar to the way like Hell's Kitchen appears in fiction as an area of New York, and sometimes not actually matching what Hell's Kitchen is like in real well, life. Well, who knows? Maybe it's like that. I don't know. I do know that, that there was a very strong Yakuza presence, like classically, like from probably the 70s up into the early 2000s. Supposedly, there have been a lot of regulations and like cracking down, especially in that area. So I don't know if they've really been pushed out or if they were really that strong there. I don't know. It's all hearsay and internet research. Uh, <laughs> I do know that uh, the name of it, uh, actually does come from Kabuki, because in the 1940s, they were intending to build a Kabuki theater there, uh, which never happened, but they kept the name anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Interesting. Yeah, and this anime really makes a big deal about the two sides of Shinjuku, uh, the east side of which is Kabukicho. Mm-hmm. The sleazy side, I guess, versus the other side of the train tracks and what's over there. Descriptions of this anime just call it like, it's like Sherlock, but in modern times. But like, I feel like it's almost a little dystopian, right? Yeah. He goes through this gate, this gate, like with bars on it under a, an over, a train overpass to get to the area. And he comes out in like a dump and it's like, yeah, he loses his money and he has to stay there. So it's like slightly dystopian or just slightly dramatic. I don't know. Well, we're clearly very eager to talk about this, so I gotta bring in our guest right away so that we can talk about Kabukicho and Rakugo and Sherlock Holmes and drag queens and <laughs> lucky cat charms uh, and all these things. Uh, traditional Japanese poetry, uh, murder <laughs> mysteries. There's a lot going on on this show in this episode. And there's a lot of overlap between some of those things I mentioned and our guest this week. So I'm really excited to have him here to talk about this with us. So our guest to this episode, he is a writer and theater artist, host of the Going Dark Theater podcast. He's a, been a ghost tour guide for over a decade, creator and performer of solo performances, including adaptations of Sherlock Holmes, Dracula and Frankenstein, and the original solo play, The Confession of Jeffrey Dahmer. And one time he solved the mystery of the bubbling sound. I've cracked the case. It's Josh Hitchens. Thank you, Noah Michael. I'm so, so happy to be here. Welcome. We're, uh, I'm excited to have you here for something that uh, hits a few of your passions, performances. Another P word, Noah. Another P. <laughs> <laughs> penguins. Great. I love penguins. Let's start by talking about mystery. There's going to be a lot to talk about. What can you tell us about m- yourself and murder mysteries? I have a very, very long love affair with murder mysteries. Um, starting, I think, like most people do with Agatha Christie. I think I read my first book when I was maybe around eight. It was Murder on the Orient Express. Um, so she was kind of my gateway to murder mysteries. And then, of course, I found Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and all of that. One thing that this anime made me remember that I hadn't thought about in years was that when I was a kid I loved renting this VHS tape from the store and revealing my age of an anime called that was in America called Sherlock Hound and of course I didn't know it was an anime when I was a child um but it was, and I remember just really, really enjoying it. And it was adaptations of Sherlock Holmes stories, but all the characters were anthropomorphic dogs. And I actually did some little bit of research before this and found out that that series was directed by Miyazaki, who did Spirited Away and all those other amazing movies. Um, so that was a cool discovery. It's a rare example of pre-Studio Ghibli Miyazaki, like because this is it wasn't direct or produced by uh, studio ghibli i don't think it even existed yet when that was made yeah and i've always been interested in you know real life true crime and unsolved mysteries as well and you know really doing research and looking at evidence and trying to find out what happened um i do a lot of that on my podcast going dark theater and i've also written quite a few theater murder mysteries for a historic site called the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion in uh, the Germantown section of Philadelphia, of which Mr. Noah Levine um, has <laughs> was in several of them. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that even slipped my mind, like, I had a long enough introduction for you already, but yeah, those murder mysteries, like where people walk through the different rooms of this historic mansion, and there's a character in each one. 
Um, pretty neat. And you've done some Sherlock Holmes productions in that space as well. Uh, you also directed, um, uh, and then there were none. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I directed that. And, um, I mean, I don't want to bring up something that might be a sore spot. You had a production of uh, Hercule Poirot that was like one of the casualties of the pandemic. Yeah, that's correct. I I wrote an adaptation of Agatha Christie's first book, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, um, which is now in the public domain. Um, it's one of the nice things is that now every single year a new Agatha Christie book gets put into public domain in the United States. So I'm going to take full advantage of that. Um, but yeah, I was going to uh, direct my script of The Mysterious Affair at Styles in the spring of 2020 uh, to mark the 100-year anniversary of when she published that book in 1920. And we were um, about halfway through the rehearsal process when uh, everything happened. So that, that show uh, will happen one day. The reason I didn't feel too bad about bringing it up is because like, I'm still determined to go see it someday, and I know you're going to produce it and, and direct it as soon as you can. It's just, it's still, a, it still is a question of when we're recording this in, uh, what is it, February 2020? Um, 2021, so Noah. The pandemic is still going on. What, 2021? That's, yeah. Is it? <laughs> what are years? Yeah, what are years? In terms of the other question I want to ask you about murder mysteries. So nowadays, if you're like looking for a good murder mystery, do you still go back to Agatha Christie? Are there some like TV shows you watch or podcasts you listen to? What's your fix these days in in terms of books that are murder mysteries i am just head over the heels in love with the books of Stuart turton uh who is an english writer uh, and his first book is called uh the seven deaths of evelyn hardcastle was retitled the seven and a half deaths of evelyn hardcastle in america for stupid reasons um but that book is one of the best books I've ever read and one of the best murder mysteries I've ever come across. There's nothing like it. It's sort of like an, like an Agatha Christie style murder mystery mashed up with quantum leap. And that's all I'll say about that one because I don't want to spoil it. Um, but he has a second book that just came out in the fall of 2020 called the devil in the dark water, which is completely different. Um, still a murder mystery though, and equally as amazing. So I, if you're into murder mysteries, I highly recommend checking out Stuart Turton's books. He's amazing. So moving on to the other half of uh, our formula anime. So you talked about seeing Sherlock Holmes. So that's an anime you saw early on. Do you watch much anime or have you seen much anime? I actually have not. It is a genre that I am woefully, woefully, shamefully un- unfamiliar with. Um, I I was a huge Sailor Moon fan um, back in the day when that when that first started airing in America. Um, really, really loved it. Um, and it's always been a genre that I've meant to really dive into more. Um, so I think that's one of the really lovely things about y'all inviting me to be a guest here is because I got to watch this this show that we're going to talk about. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I want to watch all of it. Yeah, so you're you're opening the doors for me, which is good. 
Yeah, and I think one thing, I don't know that we've even discussed, but when I think of anime and, like, watching anime, I think there's people, like, especially Michael and me more so, now that we've been doing this podcast and been in a relationship, <laughs> um, who, like, watch anime because they like watching anime and they're, in like, into anime as a thing and exploring it and all the different sides of it. But anime is also so diverse. So if you're, like, someone who likes murder mystery, you might be like, oh, this particular anime is something I'm interested in and not necessarily be like, now I have to watch you know, giant fighting robots too. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that though. (laughs) Or you can mix them and watch Big O and then you've got mystery, you've got giant robots, (laughs) you've got tomatoes. Don't ask. (laughs) Apart from Sherlock Hound is definitely a mystery anime. So I always ask if people have seen a mystery anime before and you have, but um, is there anything else you've seen? Like mystery or detective anime? I don't think so. I think that's the only one. Um, so far, other than this one we're going to talk about now. Yeah, I feel like I could get you hooked on Detective Conan, but that's, <laughs> you know, we're getting there soon. Um, also, like, um, I'll plug it more, but the I think you'd also be interested in the series we're covering next week on the podcast, which I think aired this past year as well, called Moriarty the Patriot. It's set in, like, Victorian London, and it's a weird version of Moriarty, who is trying to bring down the British class system. What if Moriarty was actually three beautiful men? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. I'm sold already. Okay, yeah, here for it. So we're doing, like, two Sherlock Holmes-inspired anime in a row, uh, which just shows you, like, how big Sherlock Holmes is as a cultural uh, reference point in Japan, as well as as, uh, throughout the world. All right, Mike, what do we need to know about this anime before we can start talking about it? Sure. Uh, So, as we said before, in America, it's called uh, Case File Number 221 Kabukicho. The original title is Kabukicho Sherlock. I think they just wanted a fancier name. It's baffling to me. Kabukicho Sherlock is a better title. (laughs) Well, they just wanted to use that. Someone someone in some boardroom somewhere was like, well, 221B Baker Street was Sherlock Holmes' address. So I'm going to work that into the title and it's going to sound so cool. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> it was produced by Production IG. Uh, in it aired originally in fall of 2019 in Japan. It's just an it's an original story. There is both a novelization, or at least going to be a novelization, and a manga adaption. But they're both based on the anime, so it's an original work. Uh, and I think there's a sequel ova focusing on the Moriarty character uh, that I don't know if it has actually happened or is mid delay. Because over over to episodes usually come out one at a time over the course of time, so I think they're currently like slowed down in production, but it exists. It sounds like maybe the first one is out because I think I read an internet comment from someone who had seen it. Yeah, I think that's the case. The twenty four episodes of the series, like the full complete series, I know it tells us a story. I I've gotten about six or seven episodes into it, but throughout the series, there's like an ongoing mystery of Jack the Ripper, and I think that does get resolved by the end of that twenty four episodes. Mm-hmm. And that so the, all of that is available on Hulu, but some of this newer stuff not yet. Anime sure does love to like loop Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper into the same thing because it's like the two mystery things they know about England. I guess let's take this fictional detective and have him face off against this actual serial killer that's been romanticized. <laughs> I think we can also say this is the second time we've uh, hit on Jack the Ripper on our podcast because there was a, a an, ep- uh, an arc of Detective Academy Q. Mm-hmm where they were stuck on an island where there had been murders inspired by Jack the Ripper. Yeah, Kirisaki Island. Uh, So what do we think are some of the elements of this anime? We've kind of talked about this. So we know know that Sherlock Holmes is there, but like, what are some of the other pieces that are going on? Well, all the 
detectives. There's like six detectives, I think. They don't all appear in this episode. And they all live yeah. in the same building. And they like compete against each other to solve cases. Yeah. I've never heard of a Sherlock Holmes version where he's like competing against other detectives like this. Have you seen anything? I haven't. No. And that was one of the things about this show that I thought was super interesting. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that are super interesting about this. <laughs> um, but I loved that in this, the Sherlock character is not presented as like the end all be all of detectives that he's omnipotent, that there, there are other pe there are other detectives who have a lot of power and a lot of insight and that it's more of a competition. So I'm very intrigued by that. I think it, that's a really fresh take on Sherlock. He mostly comes out on top. The, the other characters get like their kind of episodes focusing on them and their stories. They all kind of have how they ended up here as detectives. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Tiger and Bunny, which is a superhero anime where they're similarly like they it's superheroes on a reality show and they compete to see who can catch the criminal first. So it's it's very similar to that. Yeah, that feels like an anime like that ingredient feels like the anime side of things is bringing that to the table and not like it's not coming from Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. So you you have some a lot of the traditional Sherlock Holmes characters represented here. So we have Sherlock Holmes, uh, you have a Watson, you have Mrs. Hudson, mm. who is a, the drag queen and the owner of the bar where they all gather. You have Inspector Lestrade. You have uh, I think oh later on you we saw saw her in the opening, but later on they introduce Irene Adler. There's a character who is James Moriarty. Um, so a lot of they're they're pulling a lot of that stuff in. We talked a lot about Kabukicho, and that's clearly an important part of this. This like setting, the the bar atmosphere it brings in, the like red light district atmosphere it brings in, which is central to this episode as well. It's very complicated, I think, to explain like what is the show about because it has all these things going on. Is there anything else that, if you were trying to explain all the things going on in in this first episode, that you think I missed? Or did we did we lay it all out there? <laughs> There's a lot. So where do you start talking? Right. <laughs> right. Well, let's go through. We'll we'll come up on it if we if we did miss something. Yeah. All right. So the pilot episode, as is common in anime, I gather, doesn't have even the either the opening or ending theme. Mm -hmm. I didn't ask any of us to watch the ending theme because like ending themes are never as fun. But um, we watched the opening narration and the opening theme that will appear in future episodes. Any takes on the opening narration? It mostly lays out what we told you about, like, Kabukicho and the uh, six detectives. Yeah, there's, like, there's an overriding theme of, like, elephant statues? I don't know. Maybe there is yeah. an actual elephant statue in Kabukicho. I didn't remember to look that up, but it's it's visually represented a lot. It, and it makes noise on, like, the hour or something. It makes an elephant sound. I'm going to look for that real quick. It's a quick. big, giant, like, pink elephant in the middle of a square. So it seems like it just references... There is like a pink elephant outside of a pink elephant bar, but it's just like a almost like a paper mache thing. So maybe a dra dramatization of that. I don't know. <laughs> Back to your question earlier of how much is this the real version of the world versus like some dystopian take on it? Yeah. All right. So now we get to the opening song. First of all, what was the song like? And did we like the song? Yeah, it's like a, a rock jazz thing. Fun? Uh, yeah, it's not like my favorite song ever. I like the singer. She she's pretty good. 
Yeah, for me, like the sound, I, I really enjoyed the song. And for me, the, the sound of it reminded me a lot of the opening theme for uh, the TV show, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Um, just that sort of ja- jaunty kind of jazzy kind of thing. Um, so I thought that that was a fun, uh, that was a fun little association for me. The, uh, the song itself is just Capture in English. Uh, it's by a group called Ego Rappin, which is the word ego hyphen the word rappin, like wrapping a present with the G chopped oh. off and a <laughs> apostrophe at the end. Uh, and it's apparently a, at least somewhat famous Japanese jazz rock duo with the, uh, the vocalist uh, and the guitar player. So, yeah. I thought it was a solid opening also in terms of like the images and the things throughout, but there wasn't necessarily as much that like stood out to me as like I want to write it down and make sure I mention this were there any images that stood out to people I mean we see kind of all the characters uh throughout I don't know any particular images that stand out uh well there's the thing I liked which is how they when they're going through like each detective uh they like make the scene black and white except for the one color which I guess is like their representative color and then there's the thing I don't like which is where they characterize the drag queen character Mrs. Hudson like a little bit like a non-consensual rapist kind of thing, which is a big pet peeve for me. Because when we were talking yeah. about this earlier, about the character of Mrs. Hudson, I was like, yeah, I think Mrs. Hudson was my favorite character. And you were like, no, you hated that character. And I was like, why? <laughs> why did I hate this character? And then I got back to the first episode and it's because she like is characterized in that very classic. It, it's it present a lot of uh, Asian culture that we've seen. Like there was that one horror movie where they had a character like this. And it's a typical attack against by transphobic people against trans people where uh they characterize them as like disguising themselves to be like a little bit of like a rapist or to be non-consensual so she like she grabs ass she like forcefully kisses sherlock and i don't like it we don't need that part of her character she's otherwise great yeah in the opening what happens is like watson is sitting down and it's kind of a cut between a couple it's like stop motiony like there's a, a couple of images in a row and in the first two images it's um Irene Adler, like, sitting down onto Watson's lap, and then all of a sudden, it's now Mrs. Hudson sitting on his lap and giving him a kiss, and, like, his face changes from delight at Irene to, like, oh, no, like, kind of embarrassment, abashment when when Mrs. Hudson appears. Um, Yeah, and I think in this episode, uh, she's a little flirtatious, and she one time grabs his butt without asking, is what you're thinking of. There is... Another episode with that, um, somewhere around episode four, where like Miss Hudson is just kind of making unwanted advances on the client, and I think that's the most comfortable. It's not all the time, but it's definitely present and noticeable, and and a choice they made that is not a good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like you know this again, having only seen the first episode. Like I think this ep- this series does what I see a lot of. Sherlock adaptations do especially more modern ones that they they really attempt to try and make it more inclusive and and really uncovering the queer subtext that is abundant in Conan Doyle's original stories and you're like oh good oh this is great but with every every time including with this show like it reach it goes so far and that reaches that point when you're like oh damn it like Why'd you have to ruin it? You know, but there, there is so, there's so much here that I do think is really pot, like queer positive, but I just hate that, you know, they, at the very end, they have to go to that. Oh, oh God, the drag queen's kissing me. Gross. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's malicious. I think 
I was thinking about this too, but I feel like there's like stages you go through in cultural representation of LGBT people. And it just feels sometimes like Japan is further back than we've gotten in America. So this kind of presentation of a gay character in this way is something like we used to see more often in US. It's kind of a progression. Um, Like first there are no gay characters or they're only villains or it's like a secret or, you know, something. And then there's like, it's positive. They're the best friend. They're funny, but it's still like very stereotypical and it doesn't end up being positive though it's trying to be. And I feel like that's kind of where this is. It's in that space. Yeah, and it's so weird that they're so, like, behind because there's a, a something resembling drag culture going farther back in Japanese history. Like, obviously, it's probably existed in all all histories forever. But, like, in terms of being acknowledged, Kabuki specifically uh, classically had all female parts played by male, char- by male actors dressing as yeah. women. And it was, like, accepted for men uh, historically to, like dress as women, live as women, as they would say, there's still this underlying, like, I don't know, transphobia to it. So I think a lot of it comes from just a, a classic Japanese trope of like, men can do what they want. <laughs> it's not like acceptance. It's just like, well, they're men, so they can do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, we should also like disclaim that, you know, we're not, we're not experts on these topics. So, you know, if if you have a better sense of things, or maybe maybe you do live in Japan or, or know from, or have, I don't know, are an academic, <laughs> and this is your area of expertise. If we ever get something wrong, you can always email us at dyingmessagepodcast at gmail dot com, <laughs> and we we're happy to share more info or deeper info uh, in future podcast episodes. Mm. So, any other standout images from the opening? There is some like really neat kind of artistic stuff that comes up later on in the episode when Sherlock Holmes does Rakugo that also comes up here of like kind of colors and things like that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I noticed is there's like a butterfly that appears a few times, like he tries to catch it and then it appears at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there was one thing I just want to call out for someone that might be watching this show and like watching lots of it in a row. In the opening, there's like a, a there's something with like a couple of characters. I think they're framed, and the last character is hidden behind a hood and they're smiling maniacally. And I get the sense that there is like um, a twist later on where there's a maybe Jack the Ripper is a character we've already met mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sort of thing. So, the, so they're show, they're showing like there's a, they can't show that character's face because it would be a spoiler is what I get from like the menacing figure in a hood. Mm. Well, you know, the butterfly thing is actually a bit of a metaphor uh, because uh, in, I do not in Japanese culture, butterflies can often represent the presence of a Shinigami or like a, a death god or a reaper, something that shows up just after someone's died to collect them. Uh, so him chasing the butterfly is maybe like a little bit of a metaphor of him chasing Jack the Ripper. Hmm. This is why you are the resident anime expert. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, we talked about the opening and now we can start talking about what goes on in the episode. It opens with kind of a juxtaposition of Watson crossing the train tracks into uh, Kabuki Cho. And something I didn't know what it was. It was like a woman in a room, but it turns out to be the woman who's murdered that they investigate later. Let's talk about Watson. <laughs> what does he look like and how is he characterized throughout this episode? And how and and Josh especially like how does he compare to other other great Watsons in histories? Those Lucy Liu's, those <laughs> yeah. I don't know who else has famously played Watson. Um what's his face? 
Martin Freeman. What was he? Was he Martin Freeman to Robert Downey Jr.? Was he Watson to Robert Downey Jr.? No, he was the, that was Jude the Law. Cumberbatch. He, to Cumberbatch, yeah. I don't yeah. remember who was Downey Jr.'s Watson, honestly. I, I kind of erased Is it Jude Law? Am I crazy? I can picture the guy. I don't know who yes. he is. Yeah, it is Jude Law, I think. That sounds right. Uh, okay, so yeah, so Watson. Yeah, I think he's... I, I appreciate that he... Like most modern day Watsons, they they lean away from the trope of like the 40s and 50s of making Watson just this bumbling moron. <laughs> like there's definitely the fish out of water thing that Watson has going on here, um, which I think is there in the original stories. Like I love, I, I, I'm very cheap. So I have the version of Hulu that has commercials. So I loved in the beginning, you know, when he, he says, ah, the city of chaos. And then it cut to commercial. And I was like, Oh, this is great. I'm, I'm so in, <laughs> but I like, I feel like this, this Watson comes across as, definitely more of a fully rounded human being than a lot of other Watsons do um, with agency of his own and idea and ideas of his own. And I'm very curious to see where, where he goes from this first episode. Yeah. I feel like even six episodes in, we don't learn all about what's going on with him, but he has some kind of case that he needs Sherlock Holmes to help him with. And so it gives him motivation, like a reason to seek out Holmes and be with Holmes, other than just like being his lackey. Yeah, he definitely comes off as like uh, like a a naive rich kid who's now wandered into like criminal town and he doesn't know what's going (laughs) on. And now he's like a little bit lost and he like loses his money. And now he has to live there for some reason because like it's like weirdly like that. But talking about that scene where he enters, uh, we touched on it briefly. It's like he literally comes through this like barred gate under a train trestle to enter and it's like he's in a dump and it made me think of like jrpgs like final fantasy 7 where like the only way to get into this town is through this like narrow passage full of monsters and it's like don't people (laughs) come and go normally in this world (laughs) they're really playing up the divisions between the east side and west side um there the, I wrote down that Watson is kind of a straight man, like he's like a normal character to all of the extreme stuff going on around him. And his his portrayal visually, I think, is pretty straightforward in that regard. He's got just unremarkable brown hair. He has this brown messenger bag he carries around. Um, his jacket has a red stripe on it, which is on like the sleeves, which is uh, a little bit of color for him. And he's a boss at home. Yeah, uh, <laughs> what, what, yeah. as soon as he walks into Kabuki Cho, someone tries to get him into like a, some kind of sex club or something by asking him if he's a boss at home or a boss in the streets. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. probably a, host, a hostess club, which can or can, may or may not be more prostitute-y, or maybe it's a little bit more on the level. Uh, but generally, it's like you, rub, you bring people in and they sit there and like there's women who are literally you pay them and they hang out with you and then you pay for like their drinks and their food while hanging out it's very weird that's a very japanese thing <laughs> yeah and then he makes his way to the bar the the pipe cat bar slash boarding home slash competition thing <laughs> <laughs> uh what do we notice as he's like going to the bar or like of the bar itself and uh, I think there's just like a lot of really good detail here in terms of like I was noticing stuff just that was drawn into the background of the scenes. 
I mean, for me, I loved, you know, when they mentioned the pipe cat and you're like, oh, what is that? I'm intrigued. And, you know, he's following these sort of neon glowing paw prints. And then as he's walking like through all these alleys and stuff, then you, like just the camera just pans by an actual cat just like chilling in the alley. And you're like, is this the pipe cat? And then you find out that it's that it's this bar, you know. So I loved that whole kind of journey. I felt like it it put it puts you in Watson's head at the very beginning when you're not quite sure what you're going to find, you know, and you're interested in the journey. I liked that aspect a lot. Cats are a big element as well. Uh, the bar is, has that name. There's the there's actual cats. There's one, I think, that hangs out in the bar because it's in the opening song. It, like, jumps out. Yeah, and there's a, a Nekomata or a Lucky Cat for representing each one of the different detective agencies. Right. I, I couldn't remember the name of them. They're, those appear all over the place. They're inside Sherlock's room, presumably because he's gathered them. Um, there's one for each detective. When he first opens the door, what do we find? <laughs> uh, Mrs. Hudson just uh, serving you everything, t- teaching you about Kabuki Cho and humping the mic stand and performing to a bar with nobody in it. Uh. <laughs> she is singing her song. I think it's a decent song. Uh, so, Josh, you have been performing in drag for years as Lavinia Loveless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I retired. I retired from drag like three years ago, so it's been okay. a bit. But I'm still, I'm still friends with a lot of folks in the in the Philadelphia drag performance community. And I, I personally really, I love the look of Mrs. Hudson, like. The note that I wrote when she, when she first came on screen was a bearded, muscled, singing drag drag queen. Yes, um, <laughs> I really like. I really love that. You know, with the problematic aspects of the character that we've already talked about a little bit, I love that. You know, visually, Mrs. Hudson is not like the stereotypical ultra femme that you might expect. I love, I love that she's bearded and like muscled and built, you know, but still very, very glamorous. You know, um, I thought that was really interesting. She reminded me so much of a Philly drag performer called Eric Jaffe. Like if they ever did a live action version of this, <laughs> Eric Jaffe should play Mrs. Hudson. It's like the resemblance is uncanny. I have like three off-topic comments in my head. So do I. <laughs> Visually, I think um, she reminds me a lot of like a muscular Conchita verse. That's not to put any of her personality traits onto Conchita verse, but just like her look was in that direction. Um, it is an interesting thing. Like, there's a number of anime and stuff that get these stage adaptations in Japan, um, and sometimes I have looked at things and been like, I would love to do a you know, a play of this. But anyway, <laughs> uh, if I can interrupt real quick at risk of falling down an anime rabbit hole, uh, your, your drag name was Lavinia Loveless. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's just funny. That reminds me so much of a, a, a character in a, an anime slash uh, video game series, Super Robot Wars named Lamia Loveless, uh, which I assume you have absolutely no relation to. Uh, her nope. main characteristics are being a spy android and having very large breasts that bounce all the time. <laughs> There's more to her character than that, but it just made me think of that for a second. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the the anime we're talking about next week, Moriarty the Patriot, is like relatively a new creation, and it's already had two stage musical adaptations. Wow. Which is just 
even crazier <laughs> when you actually see that show. Oh, I, I bet that's by the people who did like the five different uh, Sailor Moon musical adaptions and the Phoenix Wright anime or uh, musical adaptions. Yeah, which which needs an English version anyway. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of the specifics about her appearance, she has like a very shiny purple dress, big hoop earrings, a big fluffy boa, uh, that beard that we talked about, and her hair is bright pink, which contrasts with the purple dress. Uh, so lots of like specific details. And then she she often has these other like outrageous outfits. There's one that appears right at the end of the episode, uh, which was like, it was like a sexy Rosie the Riveter almost, because she had like her like short hair up in... And a scarf uh, and like a midriff bearing uh, shirt. And when we see the room, like the back room where the detectives gather, she has a bunch of stands with different dresses set up. I wrote down two lines from her song. The first one is, I love hot men. Girls can get lost. Don't even joke about that. (laughs) (laughs) Poetry. And then the other line I wrote down was, yeah, she's introducing the the setup of this bar and this location. A wonderland for boys and girls, a row house like you've never seen. <laughs> she's a very multi-talented uh, individual. Uh, she's what? She's a bar owner. She's a landlord. She's a detective competition operator, a poet, a performer. Did I say performer? I don't know. She's she's a she does everything. <laughs> In the Sherlock Holmes stories, I feel like Mrs. Hudson is mostly a background character. And it's more like a modern thing to try to, like, make Mrs. Hudson relevant in some way. Yeah, she's just the landlady, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. Like, even, like, in the famous, like, British 80s ver- series starring Jeremy Brett, like, she's she's barely in it. She's very much, like, that background, like, oh, would you like some tea, dear? And in the... The more modern Sherlock show with you know Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, they do they do give her some more screen time, but she's still very much in that kind of mo- motherly landlady kind kind of trope. So I think this is the most original depiction of Mrs. Hudson I've ever seen, and I'm I'm so thrilled by it. I'm really really into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean beyond the drag aspect, which doesn't have to be the problem that it ends up being sometimes uh just the idea of being like the one kind of gathering these detectives and giving them cases is a nice twist Mm -hmm. the the next thing that happens is uh inspector lestrade enters Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, there's always a lestrade this one with a very wild wig and glasses because he's not supposed to be seeking out private detectives Oh, that's what it is. He's disguising his identity. Yes. I thought it was like a vanity thing. No, it's just a very bad disguise. (laughs) He's a short man, and this wig is pretty bad. Uh, It kind of flops around a bit and moves back and forth. Because they want you to know it's a wig. Mm. And Lestrade goes back into the back room with everybody, which is where they kind of give out the cases to everyone. And there's three detectives in there who are receiving these cases. Now, the way it plays out, they don't tell us at first which one is Sherlock Holmes. This is the pilot episode, so we don't uh, – if you watch this uh, fresh, you don't know who Sherlock Holmes is. It gets – it's not something that carried on very far into the episode, so I don't think it's worth us pretending we don't know who it is. Um, but it, it is kind of interesting how, how it plays out and kind of – you don't know which one is which at first. Let's go ahead and talk about these three detectives. So the first one is probably the one you're maybe going to assume is Sherlock Holmes. He 
He's wearing this suit. He's very well put together. He's got very well put together hair, glasses. And we later learn that he is the clean freak detective, Kyogoku Fuyuto. Um, so what did we? What traits of this character did we pick up on in this episode? Uh, he looks like a butler. <laughs> a little bit. He is attracted to the drag queens that work in the bar, but doesn't want to admit it. Uh, which there's there's more on that later. Yeah, I think later on they they give him that like awkward virgin trait, which is also a little uncomfortable. Yeah, and he like wears gloves but wipes them off and stuff. For me, like the note I wrote down for this for this section, like when they're all gathering, I was like, I wrote, I have no idea who anyone is, and it's totally fine, um, <laughs> you know, because they are very all very distinct in the way they look and present themselves, um, and it takes like like you said, it takes a bit for us to fi- figure out who is who. But even though I didn't know, like names of people necessarily i could you can easily identify the different types like they're all very distinct so i thought that was a really nice touch yeah this guy has like that nervous energy and i think you're exactly right i think it was very deliberate the way they didn't tell us the names of the characters right away and overall it it ends up being helpful because you kind of get them slowly and as it it helps with the information dump that's happening in this episode (laughs) Uh, there's another guy. The next guy in the room is an older man with an orange coat and a red tie. And we learn the reason we know these traits about them is because their name pops up on the screen with like a description. And it literally says the word former cop and gambling detective Michel Belmont. I don't think he does much um, interesting in this episode that stands out more than just his title of former cop and gambling detective. Now, he comes off as being maybe a little bit more professional and low key than the rest of them, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's about it. I haven't gotten far enough into the series to to like get more into his character, but like there's these six different detectives and they do have an episode where it's like a story about this one and you kind of get their backstory and how they got here. And I haven't gotten far enough to get to this guy, but I assume eventually he'll have an episode and we'll learn what his deal is. I forget. Is, is it six detectives counting the brother and sister pair as one detective? No, I think the, I think it's five sets because one there's a brother sister team. Gotcha. Uh, which brings us to the other detective who, by process of elimination, turns out to be Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> First of all, any thoughts on his appearance? Hoofball hat. Yeah, he wears this big hat a lot. He has kind of grayish hair, which is up. Like, does he always have the ponytail in the back in kind of a traditional Japanese style? I don't know if it's traditional. He has a ponytail. Yeah. <laughs> okay. well, strike that from the record. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I loved that, you know, for this Sherlock, you know, the hat he's wearing, it has that echo that of the famous like deer stalker hat silhouette that everyone's familiar with. But I love the touch of the little poof ball on the on the top of it. You know, um, it reminded me a lot of um, a very old South Park episode called good times with weapons where like i think that was that was the one where the boys turn into anime characters and they Mm -hmm. look just like sherlock does in this so i i just thought that it's such a fun touch on an on an old visual for sherlock i think for some reason and i don't even like south park anymore for various reasons but as soon as you mentioned that i realized that i actually memorized the entire fake anime song they do and i could probably sing it for you right now i'm not going to but i could <laughs> oh yeah no it's i remember that now too oh yeah that was that was that was something are the lyrics in english mm, half <laughs> okay because that would be seemingly easier to remember <laughs> all right so bridging 
and starting to talk about Sherlock Holmes's personality as well. I think this is one of the things that really drew me to this show that I really liked is how they took some of these ideas of what Sherlock Holmes traits are and kind of do it in a new way and also a very anime and very Japanese specific way. Um, so he's got some of that kind of aloofness or like, you know, disconnect from normal social norms, kind of shortness with people, but not in the way I don't like in Sherlock where he's like a psychopath. <laughs> it comes off very different here. Mm-hmm. Other thing we no- noticed on his personality. He eats weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, ma- I, I, he makes a meal at the end and it's like, uh, what, like fresh? Yeah, it's like microwavable convenience store, either fried rice or paella, and then he dumps canned peaches on top. And Watson watches in horror. <laughs> well, and they're when they're eating like um, in the club, doesn't he put like chili oil into his drink or something like that too? Yeah, that's done in a really interesting way too, in terms of like the um, animation and portrayal, where you see him putting it in his drink, and then at the end of the scene, it zooms in on the bottle, and you realize he was dumping chili oil. <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me a little bit of an anime that probably not many people have watched or heard of called Gunsword, where the main character, Vaughn, would dump, like, he'd order something cheap and then dump every condiment that they had on it, like mayonnaise, ketchup, and then eat it. Yeah. But there's this element, he's also very messy. This I, We don't see that much in this episode, but in later episodes, like, Watson just, like, cleans up after him because um, he's a bit of a slob. So there's this, like, element of him, like, not being able to take care of himself like a normal person. Which is very true to the original stories, too. Like, Baker Street was always filthy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what is the mystery that they're going to be solving, and how does it get given to them? So they're, they're all gathered in this back room, and Lestrade tells them the details of the case, that there's there's these Jack the Ripper killings that have been going on, and they found one with the same MO. Um, there's some motivation for him to get this solved, because the ward mayor's daughter was killed six months ago. So that's why he's like now come to them, even though he doesn't necessarily always want to. Um, and the way that the show setup kind of works is, yeah, they all compete for payment on these different jobs. And presumably whoever solves it gets the money. Mm-hmm. And payment for this one is 10 million yen. Mm-hmm. Plus a bonus. Yeah, plus a bonus. Also, they get these very cute and I like just kind of want one because it's like a credit card but like with a beep with the pager screen on it with like a little lcd (laughs) display and it looks like a cat and it's like it tracks their progress and also they use it for like charging things like the expenses during their investigation because this is a special job they're allowed to charge expenses to it when they get drinks at the club later on (laughs) it reminded me as noah pointed out my digimon fanboyism earlier in the episode (laughs) of uh, the little digimon virtual pets so i enjoyed those but in order for the thing to begin, Mrs. Hudson has to recite a poem. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what kind of poetry it was. It's definitely some kind of formal Japanese poetry because when she talks, the words appear on the screen in very hand-drawn kanji. But it's not haiku and it's not, what was it, tanka, the poetry from the last episode? Yeah, that was two episodes ago, episode 29. We talked a little, oh, quite a bit about tanka poetry. Yeah, in, in terms of the own count or the Japanese syllables count, it was not It was neither of those. That's all I can say. <laughs> Free verse, we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Um, and I wrote down one line from this poem. This row house is filled with the strangest of men, and people call it the detective's row house. <laughs> It's just kind of very straightforward talking about the setup. It's like a, it, it very much seems like a ritual to to start off the case. 
Um, so they all are going to c- try to rush to go solve the case. They bump into one detective who I thought was going to go with them. So I wrote down his name, which is Torotoro Kobayashi. He's like a gangsterish kind of. Yeah, he's like a shitty Yakuza guy. Guy. But he doesn't do anything else in this episode. So I. Uh, <laughs> we I also see I... the brother sister duo very quickly and then they disappear. Yeah, they walk by as well. Mm. I like also when a show knows that it's a series and like not every character needs to be important in every episode. Um, Especially when there's a gajillion characters. Yeah, there's a gajillion. <laughs> um, Watson is trying to like, he sees them kind of on their way out and is trying to figure out who is who. And when he asks um, the clean freak detective, Kyogoku, should I be calling him Kyogoku or should I be calling him Fuyuto? Uh, I don't know. We don't know what other people call him. I don't know which one is his surname. I think Kyogoku is his surname. Let's just call him the butler. The butler. <laughs> he asks him, Watson asks, are you Sherlock? And he says, don't mistake me for that pervert, which is a very sharp rebuke. Through a series of events, like Sherlock Holmes' car doesn't start and Watson gives him a ride to the scene. He also has his wallet stolen by a kid who bumps into him. and the, but, but being in the car with Sherlock gives him an opportunity to try to get Sherlock to take his case. And this is actually when we first get introduced that this is John Watson and that this is Sherlock Holmes, who they subtitle as Bizarre Detective. <laughs> it's fair. Anything else from like this whole sequence of events where they're on their way to the, the crime scene? I mean, for me, I, I just wrote down a line. I think, I think it was Watson who said it, but it was one step outside the bright neon lights and it's darkness. And I was like, oh, this wonderful wonderful like film noir kind of thing it, yeah right the idea that like the juxtaposition of like the the crime we're led to believe goes on in this area with the neon entertainment district mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and it's throughout the scene that each of the detectives that we've talked about already the, like their names pop up and when we learn what their names are and what their deal is um but let's lay out like what was the crime this episode and some of the stuff we find at the crime scene. Uh, I just covered my face like I'm not recording a podcast. <laughs> the victim, was it Satori or Sayori? I feel like... I think it was Sayori. I don't remember. I didn't write it down. I hit the wrong letter. Okay, Sayori Onoe is the victim. And she is laying in the middle floor of the... On the floor in the middle of this apartment. She's in her underwear. She has been br- brutalized. Did people pick up other clues that they were talking about? I don't know about clues, but we should probably mention uh, her private stuff has been cut out. And then someone has drawn wings on the floor, uh, like angel wings around her. And this is supposedly Jack the Ripper's MO in this uh, incarnation, that he does this specific thing to the bodies. You know, that that was something that watching this, I was like, oh, I was not expecting this to go there. Like I literally wrote wrote the lot when they described it. I wrote it down in like all caps. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, on a lo- about about this crime, one of the things I really appreciated about this episode is that they do they are quite faithful to the real Jack the Ripper's mo. Um, like I I've been sort of a, a Ripper scholar for many years. Um, and I did a, lo- a long series of episodes on it for my podcast. And when you see the body in this episode, it is reminiscent of how several of the victims were found and that you do see that 
the killer has placed different items around her body in sort of some kind of ritualistic way um, was, you know, is very, very accurate. So I was very, very impressed by that later on when when they say, oh, she she took off her own clothes like that. Yeah, that's that is literally exactly Mary Kelly, um, the real Jack the Ripper's final victim did that exact thing so they were like she maybe she knew who it was so i was i'm really impressed with this show of how truthful they are to the actual history i'm really love that they're pulling so much inspiration from yeah from jack the ripper and from sherlock holmes while like all these other detective characters they just made up for this show (laughs) so it's such an interesting combo Mm -hmm. There's fingerprints on the scene, but they don't know. There's no idea who those are. Mm-hmm. There's there's some funny things that happen as each detective investigates. So the clean freak guy he examines the phone and deletes the messages <laughs> after reading them before handing them to Sherlock because this is a competition after all. Yeah, and that characterizes him like pretty quickly as being like disingenuous. And he's convinced that he has solved it. We will f- find out whether or not he did. Sherlock's examination of the body is kind of shot in an interesting way. He like goes all over the scene and looks around. He notices a cigarette on the uh, like a smoked cigar actually turns out on the ground and he notices the smell of the body, which he talks to himself about. He he specifically says, is this the smell of the Bahamas? To which Mm -hmm. I say, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Watson notes the surgery because he's a doctor. So he notes like the body parts were removed poorly. It wasn't done you know well and it's not anyone's real apartment it's just like no one lives here none of the people that were involved presumably Mm -hmm. sorry i fell down a hole of researching if there are like bahamas cigars and i just got a bunch of ads so i'm abandoning that search (laughs) (laughs) so there's the characters kind of go off in different directions to solve the murder let's jump ahead to the least least consequential one which is that the clean freak guy is convinced he solved it so he takes lestrade to go arrest this guy and this is just kind of a a scene played for laughs and for throwaway bits but we gotta talk about it don't we Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i was like middling on the scene like, I understood the humor of it, but also it falls a little bit into the territory of the... Well, well, tell me what happens. Someone tell me what happens. Yeah, so he knocks on the door, and this guy comes to the door, and he's like, oh, well, you were in contact. This, you're the last one who talked to this woman who was murdered, and let me guess. Not only does he... He's brought Lestrade in, like, a handful of police. Yeah, like, he's fully ready to arrest them, and he's like, I think you were her lover, and that you met her, and that you killed her. But he, he's, like, being vague about it. Like, you... you you met your lover and like it was illicit or I don't know. I don't remember how it went, but basically the guy acts guilty because he has been seeing a secret lover, but it turns out it's just this guy who is in the room and they run out and they're hugging each other and they're like proclaiming their love and they don't care if society is against them. And, and he's just like, ah, whoops, never mind. <laughs> Once again, the character's secret is there that they were gay. Once again, <laughs> it's a thing that happens. Yeah, and like it's like we were talking about earlier. Like I, I like just the simple fact that there is representation at all. Um, I also like the fact that you know they are not stereotypical, you know, queer people. Um, you know, whatever that really means. Um, but yeah, it's just sort. Of, but again, at at the it's like oh you're going so far and then at the end it's like oh it's the shameful secret you know um and i'm like oh come on 
Absolutely. It's such it's such a weird thing. And I think mostly it's just about uh, this, this one detective being wrong and embarrassing himself in front of Lestrade. Mm-hmm. But why'd you why'd you got to get gay people involved? <laughs> Meanwhile, Sherlock and Michelle, the uh, gambling detective, go to the White Rose, which is is that it's maybe a hostess place. Um, they found the phone number in the victim's phone. Yeah, It's a hostess club. And it was it was her last number that she had called on her phone. Um, it's owned by a former host named Messiah. He interviews the girls and he sleeps with the ones he likes. <laughs> Sherlock also, like, has the trait of, like, not being interested in romance here. Mm-hmm. And he reads one of the girls to, like, filth. <laughs> and smells her armpit. Like, <laughs> that was so bizarre. I was like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> I think it was uh, there's there's some misogyny in what he does here where he like yep. sees this attractive woman flirting on him and rather than just being like i'm not interested in you he like identifies her plastic surgery and yeah smells her body without permission mm-hmm. and uh accuses her probably since it's sherlock holmes he's always going to be right of um that she got plastic surgery and is paying off the loans by sleeping with someone because of whatever it was he smelled on her mm-hmm. don't do that to people that's <laughs> not a that's not a way to treat people yeah i mean there's also an element where like he's not interested because he knows that she's a hostess and that she's trying to make money i guess but also yeah he just yeah read her down and she of course goes and gets the bouncer and they're like we would like you to leave <laughs> they lie and say the victim was lestrade's younger sister in order to get some records mm-hmm. and uh they find some clues from the records that uh she got a call from the white rose a few days ago because she did an interview but she ultimately wasn't hired mm-hmm. Um, at this point, we have seen all of the clues that Sherlock uses. So, like, the main clues are the things about the body, the cigar that he found, the smell that he saw, and the fact that she did an interview and wasn't hired. Sherlock puts this all together in a way that we as the audience, I don't know that we're entirely capable of drawing the conclusions that he draws. But certainly he calls on the clues that the show fairly focused on and pointed out and shared with us. There's also a few uh, clues that are, like, Maybe they were in there in the blood because there's two things he conclusions he draws from the oh, blood that's true. that nobody would have been able to pick up on. And I don't know if they represented right. it. <laughs> that's true. The, he does say in the blood that he can see one fingernail is longer because there's scratches on the ground. And it's not clear if we knew that or not. And also that he saw the murderer's footprints and judged how tall they were based on how far apart the footprints were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Sherlock goes home. Watson follows him home. Sherlock's not happy he's there. I, li- I like Sherlock Holmes's room here. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of tchotchkes. Yeah. Literally wrote the word tchotchkes. <laughs> <laughs> I also think we it's important for us to point out that when they found um, that she was that she was not hired, the reason for her not being hired was gloomy. Not hired. Gloomy. Oh. And I was just like, oh, that's such a mood. Like, I, I would <laughs> never have been hired for anything. Um, like, yeah, I just thought that was a hysterical detail that, like, happened so fast that, like, if you blink, you miss it. But I just thought mm-hmm. that was so, so funny. Love that. Yeah, I noticed that but didn't write it down. It was, it was like, written on the form. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to talk about Sherlock Holmes' apartment because – well, I did notice a stack of reference books, which is another thing that, like, I feel like is a recurring Sherlock Holmes thing that he has lots of books, mm-hmm. or he had he has shelves and shelves of books. And his apartment is a little small, but he has enough space in there for a Rakugo stage. <laughs> <laughs> 
Josh, do you have? Did you look up Rakugo at all? Do you know, do you know anything about it? Um, you explain when you asked me to, you know, if I wanted to be a guest on on this show, you did you did explain what that was. So that was very very yeah. helpful in watching this episode because it was not something I was familiar with. So I was very excited to to see this example of it. So let's fill you in a little bit more. So Michael and I watched a couple episodes of the show together. And every time Sherlock Holmes goes to solve a case, he would like kneel on the ground and talk to himself. And we're like, okay, we can follow what's going on, but we don't know exactly what he's doing. And then about four or five episodes in, there's an episode that specifically deals with Rakugo. And we learned that um, Sherlock Holmes... It's by, his greatest aspiration in this series is to become a professional Rakugo performer. And he like idolizes people and follows them. And that's his passion. And we're like, oh, Rakugo. And then we looked it up and read about it. And we're like, oh, because it wasn't something we hadn't covered before or, or heard about. Um, interesting. You know, there's often lots of elements of Japanese culture portrayed in anime, but we just hadn't encountered this before. Um, so but it is something that I think a Japanese audience would see what he's doing and realize that he's representing rakugo the same way like if we saw someone it's it's i think it's very similar to if a detective in an american show was suddenly standing with a brick wall behind them and a microphone in front of them and presenting the cases if they were doing stand-up <laughs> we'd be like oh they're doing stand-up because of the brick wall and because of the microphone and because of the pattern they're talking in but some of the elements of rakugo are uh, from our understanding from watching it, you can find on YouTube some videos of people. Uh, there's this one guy who toured the U.S. a lot and would perform in English. You can't quite get the sense of it if you just find a Japanese video without subtitles. But um, it's a traditional Japanese storytelling format. They're usually used to tell like folk tales. So the kind of thing where like there's a fisherman in a village and he's going out like that kind of um, traditional story. But here Sherlock is telling it to solve the cases. Um, the, it's one performer who kneels on the ground, usually on a pillow. So what's fun in this episode, he does it in his apartment where he has a setup. But in later episodes, they'll just be like at the crime scene and he pulls out a pillow from somewhere to <laughs> kneel down and do this. <laughs> They're kneeling down on a pillow, and there's always multiple characters, and it's very conversational, too. So it's like the performer is the two characters. They turn their head to one side to be one character, and they turn their head to the other side to be the other character. They usually have different voices and personalities for each one. And there's a lot of banter, like, you know, the the fisherman went down to the pier. Are you saying there was a pier? Like, they're kind of discussing the, the stories back and forth. And it's, it's something people would watch, I guess. I don't know exactly. <laughs> I think it's something relatively old-fashioned now. It was something that was, like, people would train the next... You would apprentice with someone and train it, like, other Japanese art forms is the impression I get. So I don't know how what the current state of Rakugo is, if it's very popular or... I don't think it's, like, super popular, but, um, like, I don't know enough about that aspect of it what it makes me think is if you just imagine someone like with two hand puppets telling like a story and then you just take the puppets away but he does all the same things <laughs> um but i think it's really interesting because both you and i josh have done solo performances and been multiple you know sometimes been multiple characters talking to each other uh, but we don't have like a formalized way to do it it's like every performer kind of does it but this like establishes oh you know this is how you change between characters and there's a lot of um formality to it yeah no i thought it was it was really interesting to watch this sort of form of solo storytelling you know um in a way in from a different culture in that you know i think mo 
most solo, like at least like Amer- American solo performers, it's not so much about, you know, when you're being different characters, like yeah. to the side, you know, and, you know, to talk to people and then, Oh, and now I'm answering. Um, and then you're back, you know, um, I think it's, it's a lot more in how you use the voice and the bot and the body, you know? Um, so it was, it was really interesting to see this Sherlock puzzle it out in this way of like asking himself the questions and answering the questions. And it reminded me a, a lot of how the, the BBC Sherlock did the whole Sherlock's mind palace bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I frankly liked this better in a way because it, it felt more, more real. And I've, I could see a person working through this, the questions of this case instead of some omniscient being like having this whole experience. Um, I really liked this take on it. It felt much more concrete and real than some sort of superpower fantasy kind of thing, even though it, yeah. the way it's animated is real is really like, colorful and in a totally different style like it still feels rooted in reality for me it also ties in like the performative aspect of solving a mystery and like sherlock holmes has literally turned it into a performance and he's kind of mixing up like the attention seeking that a a sherlock holmes might have where he like wants people to watch him while he solves the mystery with like well, this is is literally a performance, <laughs> so he he's just literally performing. And I think the other thing to point out is, yes, like the characters can recognize that he's doing Rakugo, um, and yes, the audience might recognize it, but it's still a weird thing for him to do. Like the, they're like, "What is he doing? Why is he doing this?" <laughs> like, um, it's very much eccentric and odd and and strange and funny yeah and as as you mentioned briefly josh calling it colorful they they literally change the way they do the cell painting like during this like he literally he gets up and he basically becomes a silhouette walking through like exploding blobs of color and then he sits down and everything is painted a completely different way while he's doing his his shtick i loved that also when he's walking as color there's words kind of floating around which are like the different elements of the case which made me think of the mind palace it's like him walking through and making the connections and then getting to this presentation and yeah just the music kicks in and the visuals are really neat it's overall a very colorful show but it's kind of neat the way they draw in the different art styles there was one one line that that did make make me sad when he was going through it and he said says something like what kind of a girl takes her clothes off for a man she hasn't met i'd love to meet her and i was like oh (laughs) damn it like uh okay (laughs) i did i note that as well um yeah it's 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 very bantery and yeah it's overall my one of my reactions to the show is oh there's a little bit of misogyny throughout which is not entirely uh, uncommon when watching anime unfortunately Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm just, I, I'm on that eternal search for a show that allows the character of Sherlock to be, to be gay. <laughs> like, <laughs> he is. Um, and I was just like, oh, no, not this one either. Okay. I like it anyway. You know? Yeah. He, he may end up being asexual. I don't, I didn't get far enough to see exactly what his, the nature of his relationship with the Irene Adler character is. And though we do have a character that calls him a pervert, uh, the construction mm-hmm. word pervert is really just like the kanji for weird 
So it might not necessarily be like sexually a pervert as much as just being really bizarre. So we don't know. Yeah. They literally called him the bizarre detective. The other thing I noted was that Moriarty says Sherlock is terrible at Rakugo, which I'm not <laughs> personally capable of. Uh, oh, we totally missed Moriarty's entrance. Oh, yeah. Moriarty's <laughs> here, everyone. A little bit as well. He's like a, I think he's like a high school age kid in this show. Yep. That hangs around Sherlock a lot and they're close friends. Mm-hmm. And he's just always, what does always that mean? amused. Oh, and he also got uh, Watson's wallet back from the, the little thieving child character. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from the very little thing that happens at the end, which is just c- a crazy twist for the end of the episode, uh, all we really have to do now is talk about the solution of the murder. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in your thoughts. Like we said, that it wasn't possible for us to get all of these clues. So, like, how satisfying is it? How much are we able to solve this? Not every mystery, murder mystery out there needs to be something you can necessarily solve, but it's interesting uh, to consider. One thing that comes out of the dialogue is the he doesn't think the lover did it because Sherlock has dis, has deduced some things about the killer from the clues, and the lover doesn't match those things. Mm-hmm. He looked at the gap between the footprints on the floor. Okay, this isn't something we really could have seen, <laughs> and deduced that the person was uh, uh, at least 5'10 tall. They say above 180 centimeters. Mm-hmm. Not wealthy, but acting like it because there was a cheap cigar smoke to the stub. And then we talked about the scratches in the blood wings because this person has a long right index finger. Mm-hmm. Um, he also concludes it's not Jack the Ripper because the it was drawn with less blood after the person had died, which is a little against his MO. Uh, I wonder if they showed us multiple images and we might have been able to see that if we noticed like between the image of this versus another one. But I didn't check on that. Also, ugh, that implies that Jack the Ripper draws the wings while the victim is not alive normally, which is not great to think about. No. <laughs> I do appreciate and I think it's it's good to point out that, you know, the crime in this in this episode is super grisly in the way it's described, but I do appreciate that in the way it's animated, like it's it's not in your face, you know, like you're not you are not seeing seeing a woman who has been mutilated in this way. Like her hands are kind of covering and she's got a little skirt on it looks like so it's not yeah it's not graphic imagery in case anyone is listening to this and might be put off by that so rest assured like you don't you don't see that it that level of detail which i I think is good i like that it's interesting because this show is definitely more adult in terms of the language and the things they say the things they're talking about than detective academy q that we watched but in some ways the like uh, drawing of some of the murders in that show were were almost more grisly than what we saw in this episode, well, despite the actual crime being worse. In Detective Academy Q, they use tricks to like show you the like the the violence, but have it be more like censored in a way, like using silhouettes With photo negatives and, and photo stuff. negatives. Whereas here, they use like not quite showing it, but it's it's probably aiming yeah. for the same general like time slot. So I think the censorship level, the self censorship level level is about the same, just using different tricks. Although the difference is this is aimed for this is definitely targeted as an older for an older audience. Yeah. So the door opens and the host of the club walks in who huh? we could probably talk about for 10 minutes. Huh? Everybody is surprised. Huh? <laughs> is that that's what the guy says? He just goes huh like 800 times. <laughs> Messiah the former host wearing a pink fuzzy suit, he's very flamboyant. I feel like he had like purple pleather pants or something going on. Something like that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic outfit. Worth, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. But he's very confused because he's not actually the murderer. Mm-hmm. 
And Sherlock just walks out the door straight past him and goes to the garage where his car is. And his driver, who's smoking a cigar. And Sherlock goes up and smells him, and he smells correctly. Like the Bahamas, question mark. I do think smelling someone for the purpose of figuring out if they're the murderer is is an invasion of personal space, but is more okay than some of the other smelling of things he has done in this episode. (laughs) And then he asks the guy for a light, and when the guy gives him a light, he sees the guy's long nail. Which never gets, like, why, why it's long never gets adequately explained. It is just one long fingernail. Some people do that. I, know, I think some guitarists do it sometimes, but otherwise, some people just do it. I had a friend uh, who will probably never listen to this, thankfully, uh, who in the era, the first, like the beginning era of touchscreen phones, when you still had to use a stylus, grew his one fingernail long in the corner so he could use his fingernail as a stylus. And that's what that made me think of. It's gross. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that happens here is Sherlock starts talking to himself in his back and forth characters, which he's still kind of in, in front of the victim or the killer rather than like doing a formal accusation or trying to grab him which gives the guy enough time to realize he's been caught and jump into his car to get away which is very comical everything that happens now is is uh, definitely funny and played for laughs mm-hmm. but we learn that the driver had been sleeping with the failed interviewees calling and saying he was from the club and kind of taking advantage of that to sleep with her. Mm -hmm. So he lied to this woman, slept with her. It seems like he killed her accidentally, but then he afterwards did the stuff to mutilate the body to try to play it off as a Jack the Ripper killer. He wasn't trying to kill her. He was just trying to rape her. That's all. Well, it's not that it makes it better. It's that it explains why the, why the, uh, right. Yeah. Emma was a little different. <laughs> he basically accidentally kills her by, like, they get in a, a tussle and she hits her head. And so he has to fake it. Yeah. And, and Michael, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you brought, you brought up the R word. Cause I, I really, I really appreciated that the show made that distinction. Like that's like, uh, it's not just like, oh yeah, he was sleep. He was sleeping with these women. It's like, no, he was raping these women. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I was just like, th- thank you for, show for being really honest about that off the awfulness of this experience you know yeah yeah there's definitely this show is a mishmash of tones i think you were talking about like almost being surprised when the violence of the body appeared and how violent that murder was and yeah like with some of the serious stuff going on but it being so funny it's like it's it's a there's a lot of uh there's a lot going on you know, like, yeah, that's just that juxtaposition that, you know, when I love that when the killer is caught, he doesn't even say anything. He just lets out this like scream like, oh, no. And I'm like, that's I, I love that because like if you know, if you were caught for a murder, like what? Like how many people would just scream, be like, oh, God, and try and run away? You know, I feel like we don't see that a lot, especially in adaptations of Sherlock. It's usually much more like, oh, so you've caught me, Mr. Holmes. You know, and this dude just like screams and makes a run for it. And I'm like, that feel that feels correct, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, we, and it's really funny. And then, yeah, a couple minutes later, we go into this sort of darker place again. It's, it's fascinating. And this is a little different from some of the anime we watch, but it's something like Detective Academy Q or Kendaichi Case Files or Detective Conan. Um, usually, when they accuse someone. Yeah, it's that same thing of first the person's like, are you how do you know it's me? Are you sure it's me? It can't be me. And then eventually they get to the point where the person confesses. Mm -hmm. And once the person confesses, they go into their sob story where they're like, but I had to do it, you know, and then they explain all that. So it's it is nice for that to not happen here. (laughs) We're just like, shit, bye. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Watson tries to follow the guy. To, he's a man of action, I guess. He jumps into a car. And when he eventually gets his car started, he runs over Sherlock Holmes in a, like, he kind of goes flying and twists up in a surprisingly <laughs> gruesome way. It yeah. looks really bad and dangerous and, and uh, damaging. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, oh, God, like, he looks terrible now. Like, his yeah. eyes were, like, whited out and he's twisted and was like, oh, dear. Yeah. Again, like, it's a surprise. Like, you, you're you not expecting that to happen at all. And it's not just a one-off joke. Like, it has repercussions for the series. <laughs> right. Well, it also enables Watson to spend more time with Holmes because now we see Holmes is in bed with his leg cast and Watson's like, Oh, I'll take I'll take care of you. I'm here. And Sherlock is like, no, don't come near me. Don't come near yeah, me. Yeah, we managed to squeak in one last homophobic joke before the end of the episode. Is that what that was? I thought the impression was you just ran me over with your car. The joke is that he had to pee and Watson being his caretaker is the one with like the pee jug that he has to pee into. I missed that line. And so I read it a different way. But you're right. Yep. That's, inter- that's interesting. Yeah, because I, I, I interpret it as like Sherlock like really, really has to pee and it's getting to the point of no return where it's like, I'm just going to piss myself. Like, don't come in. Don't watch me pee my pants. You know, um, I interpret it that way, but I can see it your way, Michael, too. It's interesting. Well, yeah, because he was he was trying to get himself out of the. We read it three different ways. He was trying to get himself out of the bed and go to the bathroom by himself before his caretaker came in looking all menacing. Like, I have your pee jug, Sherlock. (laughs) Like with this like very dopey, (laughs) evil, maniacal sense. I think you're right that there is an element of that joke in there. I I, I do think it's interesting that the three of us found three different jokes. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's it. We've we've talked through we've talked through the whole thing, like we said there was a there was a lot to talk about for a short episode. Uh, it's a very dense, yeah. Well, we've obviously been comparing this to a lot of other Sherlock Holmes things, and we brought up some other things as well. But did it remind you of anything you've seen before, or would you compare it to anything else? I mean, for me, it watching this, it felt like perhaps people had seen the you know more recent BBC Sherlock set in the modern day and saw some of the mistakes and missteps that show made of which in my opinion, there are many. Um, and they decided let's make our own show and do it better. Um, and I, you know, even though I've only seen one episode of this, I do, I, I like this version of, of modern day Sherlock and Watson, better i think it's it's a much more interesting world um that they've created much more interesting cast of characters um and it it made me want to watch more of it well you answered the next question i have written down which is would you watch more (laughs) (laughs) i did watch more i think the thing happened to me was like one night i was watching and i was really tired and i was halfway through an episode and stopped and then i was like oh no i'm halfway through an episode and i never started watching again (laughs) But um, I enjoyed the more episodes I saw. I think we will cover more episodes in the future on this podcast, probably not this calendar year, but um, they have an overarching plot. Sometimes the episodes are more self-contained than others. We always like to have self-contained episodes so we can bring in a new guest who doesn't have to know what's going on. <laughs> but I think there are at least a, a handful of episodes in this series where like the, the mystery is self-contained that we'll, that we'll probably watch later. 
Yeah, Michael, any other anime references? Like, you talked about Tiger and Bunny, but are there any other anime this reminds you of? Yeah, I was going to say, bring back, yeah, that it did remind me in the competition sense and some of the way, like, the characters are very, like, ridiculous and flamboyant. Uh, It reminds me a lot of Tiger and Bunny. Uh, And then, in a way, like, the, the weird sort of dystopian, like, is it... Is it modern? Is it like a weird alternate history? Like, what is it? Uh, actually, reminds me a little bit of Akudama Drive, uh, the way they've yeah. they've set up that like region. Like, that's more futuristic, but it's like yeah, like it's Japan, but also it's like a weird version of Japan where this area is like. We've we've been watching some of that together. That's a recent anime with kind of a cyberpunk aesthetic, but it's very neon, and I think yeah, visually, it's probably the most similar visual style. Mm-hmm. That I can think of that I that I personally have seen. Yeah, it also channels the yeah the visual style and sort of again these extremely weird characters all working together and also against each other. Now I I kind of brought this up when we were talking about the solution, but how did this function for you as a murder mystery? Like it's not something you can necessarily solve. What, what did we think of that? This is a question because I I only watched the episode once and I was tempted to go back and watch it again to see if I could answer this question for myself, but I didn't. But do we do we see the driver before the very end? Nope. No. Yeah, I think that that's really my my uh, my my issue with it. I mean, yeah, there there are some clues that we could not po- we the audience could not possibly have known, like the way the fingernail with the way the blood was drawn and the height of the person but i think you know my one of my big things is like the killer should not be a person that the audience has never seen before (laughs) you know even if like we had seen that driver in one shadowy shot like driving away the owner we hadn't even seen the owner before. Did did we even see him in the beginning? Like we saw a person in the opening shots juxtaposed with Watson, but I don't think we saw his face or anything, right? No. No. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's my only thing is like I w- I wish, you know, that 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 the we the killer was more part of the world even in a very very brief sense before the very end. Yeah, it, yeah. It's not a mystery that's concerned with you maybe having all the pieces or a fair play mystery as soji shimada would say but uh it's more of a dramatic reveals for the sake of dramatic reveals i think this show is more about the overarching plot and the characters and less about the mystery despite being a murder mystery show but this is the closest version to the butler did it that we've gotten so (laughs) (laughs) is it i think so not just the butler being uh, a ninja ninja teacher yeah So uh, as far as you all, our listeners, if you end up watching more about this or have some thoughts on the show, definitely send us an email, dyingmessagepodcast at gmail.com and share it with us. And I'm Michael, I'm going to jump ahead of you. You always ask for art. So if someone wants to draw positive queer representations of the characters from this show and send them to us in an email at dyingmessagepodcast at gmail.com, would that satisfy you, Michael? Or just send us your fun microwave recipes involving uh, convenience store dishes and canned food. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you want to recreate some of that food dish from the end of the episode and take a picture of that, um, if we had an Instagram, we would uh, share. We would. Share I will that Venmo you five dollars to the first person who does it, and that's it. <laughs> let's let's pretend someone will actually be tempted by that <laughs> when they hear this one. It airs. 
Yeah, so Josh, I think this did end up being a good fit for you to come on this episode. I mean, we didn't get to talk about like your ghost tourness as much. You just finished writing a book about all the ghosts in all the ghosts in Delaware. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you have a book coming out. You have your podcast. W- where can people find you? Sure thing. Uh, well, again, uh, Noah and Michael, thank you so much for having me on. Um, this this was a blast. And yeah, I, I loved this show. I look forward to watch watching more of it. It's definitely right up my alley with the the Sherlock and the noir um, and queer representation, you know, problematic as some of it may be. But yeah, I have a podcast called Going Dark Theater, uh, which is about finding the humanity behind the horror. Um, I research and write and narrate true stories of hauntings, unsolved mysteries, and horrific history from all over the world. That podcast is available on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And I am also, I also just uh, finished writing my first book, uh, which is going to be called Haunted History of Delaware. Uh, it's going to be published by the History Press in August or September of this year, 2021. So it'll be out in time for Halloween. Uh, and I also have a Patreon um, where I share. Uh, the text of my podcast episodes and other horror spooky writings that I do. Uh, and that is just patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens for anyone who is interested. And you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month if the spirit should move you. If the spirit should move you. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Gotta be on board. <laughs> you know. You know. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, thank thank you so much for chatting with us. And it's a little bit of a longer episode. It's it's a bit incongruous because usually when we go long, it's because we've watched five episodes of anime. And this time it's just because we watched one very elaborate episode. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. Yeah. But we're glad to spend time with you today and hear from you on that. Um, I mentioned earlier on that next week we're going to be covering the anime Moriarty the Patriot. You can find this show on Funimation.com. I believe we have an account, but I believe you can watch without an account. You just get ads and then the premium upgrade lets you watch without ads. Um, But you can find that there. Now, we're not going to be talking about episode one of Moriarty the Patriot because it's kind of extraneous and you can skip it. And I recommend that if you watch it because it sounds interesting, that you watch episodes two, then three, and then you can go back and watch episode one because, in my opinion, they did a b- bad job by putting that first. <laughs> so we're, de- we're probably covering episode two. We might also talk about episode three of Moriarty the Patriot. It is a show, like Michael said, Moriarty is three attractive men (laughs) in Victorian London. Uh, Sherlock Holmes appears later in the series, but not in the episodes we're covering. Um, They are trying to take down the the class structure of Victorian London, which they see as unjust, and they are doing it through crime. Uh, So yeah, thank you listeners for listening to this podcast episode. We're glad to have you with us as we continue our tour of recent detective anime. Um, The best way that you can help us out in getting the word out about the podcast is to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts, if that's where you're listening. Um, Give us that star rating, write a comment. If you're on another podcast service, follow or subscribe. All of that helps other people find our podcast and uh, lets them know that you enjoyed it and maybe they'll enjoy it. 
You can also keep in touch with us on social media, Dying Message Podcast on Facebook, at Dying Message Pod on Twitter, um, and send us that email, dyingmessagepodcast at gmail.com. It doesn't matter if it's been a, a year since this episode has come out. If you have something to say about what we talked about today, we would love to bring it up in a future episode. Thank you all so much for listening. All right. Um, we can all go on with our lives. Oh, no, we can't, because, Josh, you still have to tell us about the mystery of the bubbling sound. Oh, yeah. So... The mystery of the bubbling sound. Um, I also live in West Philadelphia, uh, as both Michael and Noah do, and I noticed there is a bubbling sound coming from outside my house after much recent snowfall that I assumed was snow melting um, because it had gotten warmer. And one night I was in my kitchen making dinner and I could still hear the bubbling sound, even though the kitchen is on the opposite side of the house from the front door. I was like, that is very curious and mysterious. Where could this bubbling sound be coming from? And then my cat went into the basement, and as she went into the basement, I heard the bubbling sound louder. So I was like, I must investigate this. So I went down into my basement to investigate and found that there was a leak from a water main break from the front of the house that was filling my basement with water. And it's all taken care of now, but that was my detective work in discovering the source of the bubbling sound, um, aided by my sidekick, my cat, Mina. One of the main purposes of basement seems to be to fill up with water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the main purposes of West Philadelphia is to have its water mains break. Yep. I also want to point out that, like, uh, the episode we watched, Your Mystery Features a Cat, which is always nice. <laughs> Cats break. And we all, we often joke about how a lot of mysteries are mysterious smells because like you can smell something, but you can't tell what direction it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Mysterious noises, like you get to follow the sound, but that's another category of mystery. Is that the sound of the Bahamas, Noah? <laughs> <laughs> what is the, what's the sound of the Bahamas? Crashing waves? Probably. <laughs> the Beach Boys? Not the Beach Boys. They think it is. <laughs> Has your cat helped you solve any other mysteries? Not so far, but I'm sure she will in the future. She's very she's very smart and intuitive about those kinds of things. And that closes the case on this week's Dying Message, the Detective Anime Mystery Podcast. Episode 31, in which we talk to ourselves and also each other. Podcast cover art created by Miriam Bloom. Music excerpted from Solve the Damn Mystery by Jesse Spillane. Thank you again to our mystery guest, Josh Hitchens. Coming up, how many attractive anime men make up one Moriarty? Is adopting orphans an effective way to flirt with the ladies? Are we ready to take on biting class commentary? All that and more when we next examine the scene of the crime for that fatal note. The Dying Message. There's an outrageous scene. I'm editing this out, but I have to tell the both of you. There's an outrageous scene in episode two where uh, Moriarty, it's a flashback and like they're all children more so than later in the series. And Moriarty is like leading a class at the orphanage where he's like teaching them to kill rich people. (laughs) <laughs> and they all chant like down with the rich it's it's like 10 children in a chapel chanting down with the rich down with the rich <laughs> sounds fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really it's really out there um is it though is it is it is it <laughs>